Welcome to the third episode of Behind the Scrubs, an original podcast series produced by UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. I'm Aspen Drew, the manager of Conhigh Center for Rural Health, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Taylor, Conhigh's associate director in the Office of Enrollment and Student Services. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Aspen. How's it going today? It's good. You know, we got our coffee. We've got our, our soft drinks. We're good today. We are, we're all set. I am sneezing my head off and my eyes itch. <laughs> it is spring. I am on all kinds of allergy medication. I've got my Claritin in the morning. Does that affect how you say rural? It, or? it doesn't. I'm good. I've got my Zyrtec in the afternoon, which might in the Benadryl at night. That, <laughs> so I good sleep. Sure. Some would say I'm overdoing it. There's a definite possibility, but I'm definitely, definitely not sneezing. My eyes don't itch. I mean, considering it's like 80 degrees today and it's supposed to be like 30 degrees in the next couple of days, you know, the back and forth has really been messing with everybody's allergies, I think. Yes, we are. Um, we are in the throes of the birth of spring. Well, the good news is that we work in an environment full of nurses. It's crazy. So you could probably get somebody to help you out with that. Um, so, Jeff, who do we have as our lovely guest today? Well, Aspen, our guest today is Dr. Melanie Richberg. Dr. Richberg is the CEO for the Lynn County Hospital District in Tahoka, Texas, since 2018. She's been an RN for over 30 years and an advanced practice nurse for over 25 years primarily serving in rural and underserved communities. She also has two dogs named Gracie and Lucy, and I'm sure they're awesome. Dr. Melanie Richberg, welcome to Behind the Scrubs. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Well, we are so excited to have Dr. Richberg today. She is the CEO for Lynn County Hospital District. She has been for five years now. So I'm going to let her introduce herself a little more and, and give us some information about yourself. So guys, I appreciate the opportunity to share some of my story and some of my passion in life. My name is Dr. Melanie Richberg. I have a doctorate in nursing from another esteemed university, Texas Tech University. And I received that degree in 2013. I've been a nurse for almost 30 years now. I graduated from nursing school at, in Abilene at Hardin-Simmons. And then went on to get my master's from ACU where I got my advanced practice and have been, until 2018, practicing full-time in a clinic providing primary care for mostly rural communities. I think probably 27 of my years in service have been in rural communities. I had a short stint at a, a community health center here in Lubbock, always underserved populations, trying to afford them an opportunity to have a, a chance for health if they so desire. So we talked about behind us, and I really like that title. However, Probably back in 99 or 2000, I quit wearing scrubs because they have elastic in the waist. And there's no easier way to gain a bunch of weight is if you don't have a constant reminder that your clothes are getting tighter. So I wear scrubs when I used to work in the emergency room and learned that probably didn't need to wear scrubs on days that you didn't want to be busy because the minute you show up in your dress clothes, then that's when everybody comes in bleeding and you have to deliver babies. So I sort of learned when it was appropriate to wear scrubs and when it was probably a bad omen if I didn't show up in scrubs. But it's great that you guys are taking interest in hearing stories. Of, I used to not think I'd ever older have stories to tell, but I have a few and I'll try to fit them in where appropriate. 
I've got to say, I need to talk to my boss. This whole scrub thing, you know, the not noticing weight gain in scrubs, this sounds fascinating. So yeah. I may be uh, having a conversation with RHR later today yeah. about all yeah. this. That, I'm excited. So Melanie, just looking at your career, thanks for, for bringing up your history. And I, I love hearing about, you know, Texas Tech. I'm a Texas Tech alum myself and all of your other schools. How did you wind up in the field of nursing? What drew you to be a nurse in the first place? Well, there's a medical condition called mononucleosis. And when I was a junior in high school, I played basketball. If you could, I'll send you a picture, but you won't see how tall I was. I actually played three years of basketball at Tarleton State. And when I was at home with mononucleosis and missing a bunch of basketball games, there was a soap opera, all my children. And none of you, I can see how old most of y'all look like, and you probably barely remember that soap opera, but there was two characters, Chris and Nina, and they had a baby that was premature and in the NICU. Well, back in the day when we had to do term papers with encyclopedias and books, and we didn't have Google, you had to decide what you were going to write your term paper on. And it interested me about neonatal and exactly what it was and taking care of, you know, small and acutely ill babies. And I just sort of fell in love with neonatal. In fact, that was what I really wanted to do is to work in a neonatal setting. And I did it for a short while. So I went through high school and needed a way to get to college and have a little fun along the way. So that's when I played a little basketball and started studying nursing and anything that was health and human services. At Tarleton, there was not an RN program. Well, there was, but it was what I know now about programs. It was more of an LBN to RN articulate program. Interesting story there. Any of y'all, when you would sign up for your college classes, remember the days that you did it with the newspaper, where you would go stand in line and you would get the newspaper in a Scantron sheet and you would try to fill it out as fast as you could so that you could get to the front of the line and you would get that easy site professor or the, you know, the teachers that you're supposed the professors you're supposed to get. Well, we had counselors and so you would have to take your newspaper over to your, your student counselor. Well, my student counselor's name was Patricia Eggdorf. I think she's still alive today. And I remember one day going to her office and she said, Why are you here? You know, and I'm like, Oh my God. I'm not supposed to be here. She goes, I mean, at this university, I'm like, I got, my parents said I had to go to college. So I'm in college. And she said, well, why are you not getting your degree in nursing? And I'm like, I just, I just want to be a nurse. And she says, you need to go and get a degree. And I was like, okay, I can't do that here. And she said, no, you're never going to get into this nursing school because it's primarily for LVNs. And I barely even knew what an LVN was. You need to transfer somewhere and get your degree. So I said, okay, uh, I will not tell you the conversation that my mother had with that poor lady about how unsupportive she was. But anyway, long story short, I went to Texas Tech for the first time for six weeks and four days and took an advanced nutrition class and a microbiology class and started nursing school in the September of 88 at Hardin-Simmons. And, you know, I've always had mentors or professors that probably knew I had the ability, but we just didn't have the focus and intent to do it. And one of my, my senior year in nursing school, one of my professors came in and said, you realize 
unless you have a 3.5 GPA, you're not going to get into a master's program. And I'm like, so? I'm going to be a nurse. Yay. And she said, you're going to want to go on and get your master's. And I'm like, what am I going to do with that? She goes, advanced practice and nurse practitioner. And I was like, okay. I really never thought anything about it, but I buckled down and came out, I think, with a 3.52, so barely squeaking by to be able to go into a graduate program. And I started to work in women's and children's there at Hendrick, um, I think it's Hendrick Health System now, but at the in the past it was Hendrick Medical Center, as they're just in the nursery. And would work two doubles and a single. So we'd work 3 to 11, 11 to 7, and we could do that. And when you were young, in 20s, you could stay up all night and you, you didn't crash like you do now. And I did that for a couple of years, and then there was a big push for breastfeeding and breast awareness and and trying to get more mamas and babies to breastfeed and families to embrace it and not be such a taboo thing. And so I took off with that and actually started a breast education program there at Hendrick in the 90s. I think it was 91, 92. And this really sounds like a phenomenon, but we actually rented breast pumps. We were probably one of the first places in Abilene that actually had a breast pump that you could either sell or you could rent. So that these women that were working that still wanted to be able to provide breast milk for their infants. And so probably none of y'all remember this lady either, either, but Governor Ann Richards, uh, I had a call from her office one day that said she wanted to come to the hospital and present us an award for our efforts in breastfeeding and women's health. And I was just like, oh, I barely knew who she was because probably I hadn't voted in about two elections and. Anyway, so she came to Abilene one day, and we had a little photo op and let her hold some babies, and she uh, presented us an award for our efforts in, in breastfeeding education. Well, then it took off. You know, then everybody wanted to be on the bandwagon, and we had lactation consultants and baby classes, everything you could imagine to teach a new mama about how to take care of their baby. So it really took off. I will say, when I was teaching Lamaze, we were the only facility when I was the teacher and I don't think even in Dallas and Fort Worth, in fact, I know Dallas may have had one, but I don't think Fort Worth did, that we actually went to the schools, the alternative schools for the, you know, back in the day when girls were getting pregnant in high school, believe it or not, it happened. It would actually, I would go out to the school and and work with the moms and the dads because, you know, sometimes the dads wanted to be involved. Sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't, but we actually went to the school, and that was part of the curriculum, as we would go out there and not only teach childbirth and what to prepare, but then basic baby, how do you take care of this little creature that you're fixing to have? And I think that's where my, my passion and my love of, of just helping others, not just helping them, but providing them with the information and the tools that they're able to make informed decisions and maybe healthier decisions and just, you know, be productive members of society. Well, we certainly appreciate your help through the maternal health program. Our our second podcast was actually really around maternal health. We do quite a bit of research here in regards to women's health. And so we yes. appreciate all of your advances for that. So my question for you is how did you get into this CEO position and What's the biggest difference that you see when it comes to being a rural CEO compared to some of the urban CEOs? You know, I think the thing for me, I always knew I would be some form of a 
of a higher level leader. I really thought it would be a chief operations person. Or at one point I thought I wanted to be like a director of some major service line at a large facility. And then the more I worked in rural medicine, the more I realized that I really like rural communities. And I think what makes me, I'm not going to say better, but gives me an advantage over some is that I have creds and not just creds with degrees, but most of these people that I work with has, have seen me every day in the clinic and they've, they've seen me work with our employees and work with families that are hurting and scared and situations that sometimes work out awesome and situations that don't always work out um, the way we wish they had. And so I, I think the credibility that I have with them as being a compassionate person and someone that will, you know, stand up and stand behind what is right. I think that was easy for me to transition over because I felt like I already had their trust and respect. Now, it has been difficult when you have to make decisions that may not be as well received with all your staff and at all levels, but you have to make decisions that are for the great of the good, not just for one specific area. So, you know, there's that. And I think having that trust and their respect starting out helps you know, lessen some of that frustration or irritation that they may have with the decision that, that I'm forced to make that they may not essentially agree with 100%. I think coming from a provider background, on a nursing background, I think that probably initially, and, and even in instances today, I'm not as well-versed in, in finances, and, and I didn't have a lot of accounting or um, economic-type classes. And so sometimes the learning curve for me seemed higher than someone that they had had a lot of financial background because healthcare finance is, it's just crazy. I mean, it's the most bizarre type of financing that, you know, I've ever been around and how we get paid for services in rural communities are different than the urban facilities are paid. And so being able to, when you're working with legislators, to be able to explain to them the difference, because, I mean, Charles Perry and I, I have, conversations with him every opportunity that I get and to help him understand from a CPA background that how I get paid in a hospital is not anything like what UMC or Covenant or Lubbock Heart get paid and you know putting it in a perspective of what he can do to help rural communities and rural hospitals but at the while at the same time you know not hurting or penalizing of the larger urban facilities because we've got to have them. I mean, we wouldn't be able to function if we didn't have a higher level of care to send some of our patients to. For context, would you explain to our listeners who Charles Perry is? Charles Perry, Senator Charles Perry, uh, was representative in, in our region up in here in Lubbock for uh, 10, 12 years. And then I think when Duncan, is that when one of the senators, Senator Duncan, I think when he elected not to run again, then Senator Perry took over his position in our legislative area. Yes, it was Duncan. I was I was living out there when that all happened. So talking about the way of advocating for your patients, for your community, you said the way in which you get paid. Now, there's a lot of just unknown variables involving this. So what's it like with insurance in a rural community, in a rural medical setting? What do you observe from your community, from your patients, and do you see any particular difficulties being where you are in dealing with insurance? I told my mother I was doing this interview, and she said, well, please don't cuss. And I said, 
Okay, mother. So I'll tell you, it's H-E double hockey sticks. So I didn't cuss, but I spelled. You know, I think what most lay people think, and, you know, I liken it to a Home Depot gift card, is that you've got health insurance, and it says I can pay $25 for the office visit, and all my prevention stuff is free, and my prescriptions are going to be 5 and in 45 and so that's all I have to pay. What they don't realize is we have to negotiate a contract, and let's just say Blue Cross, for example, because it's a huge one. And so we have to negotiate with Blue Cross for almost every line item of things we would be able to do. That, okay, if I'm going to do a CAT scan of your head, I want you to pay me this much money for every patient that I see. I get this much money. If I'm going to put you in the hospital for a day, I'm going to get this much money for a day. Well, with critical access, back in, I think it was the 90s, they made a a rule that critical access hospitals, well, there was a designation for critical access that you could become. And basically, it's a population in a remote area that has a limited number of people that they're caring for. And therein lies, because of the limited number of people, they would have limited access to resources. So what the federal government did was they allowed Medicare recipients that are seen at the critical access hospitals for their care to be what we call cost-based. So if someone with Medicare comes in and they need they have pneumonia um, and it's going to cost, let's say, $10,000 to take care of them to get them in and out of the hospital, if they have Medicare the hospital would get $10,000, and then we have to do a report that says this is how much it cost me to take care of that. Well, what's happened with the Advantage Care programs that are coming out, and now they're gobbling up all the, the Medicare dollars that used to go to the traditional Medicare program, then that you negotiate with them is, okay, grandma has pneumonia. I'll pay you 80% of whatever it costs you. Well, that's a good deal for them if I could be guaranteed that we're going to have the a volume of patients to at all the expenses that we're going to have because guess what a gallon of milk in Tahoka is probably not the same as a gallon of milk in Lubbock it's probably higher a box of band-aids in Tahoka is probably going to cost me more money than the hundred boxes of band-aids that UMC buys so I can't go out and I can't negotiate those contracts And then the federal government won't let small community hospitals rally together and say, okay, we're all going to negotiate with Blue Cross for this policy so that y'all have to pay us the same. There's been some loosening of those regulations, and now there are purchasing groups that we can be a part of. And so if I could get in a purchasing group, say one similar like Covenant or UMC, then this purchasing group goes and buys a 10,000 boxes of Band-Aids, and we all get them for the same price. So I, I get that advantage. But that's probably been the last five or six years that, that we've been really able to afford those types of things. So um, dealing with insurance is, it's probably one of the most frustrating things that that I have to deal with on a daily basis because I don't think the community, I don't think the layperson understands exactly what is behind that $25 copay that even if my bill says it's $100, don't think I'm probably getting $100 from your insurance. So for our listeners, each state is different uh, in how 
you're repaid back. And that all depends on whether your state has Medicare expansion, Medicaid expansion, different policies that are in place. But the typical state has six different ways to pay in a hospital. So typically that depends whether you're insured or uninsured. And so you are definitely not the first person that I've come in contact with from a rural hospital that has said that insurance is their downfall. I'm sure that you have an opinion on uh, how Texas has decided not to expand Medicaid. How has that affected you? I'm not sure that I know the impact that it would have had on my organization yet, primarily because the state government has to do one thing every year. The only they have to pass every year is the budget. That's the only thing they have to do. They can just mess around the rest of the time and not pass anything else. What they have historically done, because you remember when I started this in 96, and there's a, another program called, there's a there's cost base for critical access hospitals. And then a few years later, they applied that same cost-based reimbursement to rural health clinics. Well, in the 90s, the caveat was Medicare and Medicaid were cost-based reimbursed. So add all my expenses up, all my revenues, and I can count dollar for dollar what it cost me to take care of the Medicare and Medicaid population. Well, over the last many years, we've not had enough money in the state budget to pay that Medicaid, and we refused to expand Medicaid. So where the shortfall came was what they call the Medicaid allowable. They would lower our Medicaid rate to well below what was cost-based. And so I'd say all that to say, we call it the funny money, whether it's DISRIP or uncompensated care or URIP or CHIRP or RAPS or, I mean, there is some acronym on how this funny money of unfunded care, you get some supplement from. Well, the last rules they made uh, when they got rid of the, what we call the DISRIP and went into the RAPS and CHIRP and all that. They admitted, the state government admitted that rural community hospitals or rural hospitals did not, this was not an advantageous for them. The people that benefited the most from the supplemental payments were the big hospitals. And it makes sense because their volume is 20 times what our volume is. I mean, if they're running 200 patients through their ER a day and I'm running five, well, of course, there's going to be more uncompensated care there. So they're going to get a reimbursement. And that that was one of the things that we've taken to the state level for positions that we really are pushing them on. And one is cost-based Medicaid and fully fund the Medicaid. Don't, don't shortfall the budget. Don't cover your shortfalls in the budget by not paying Medicaid, at least at a minimum, to the rural community hospitals. And then the other one is to redo the funding money parameters and quit penalizing the rural communities because of our low volumes. Yeah, I, insurance is just, it's a nightmare. And I, I wish I had the solution because y'all'd be wanting my autograph and seeing me on Times Square or something. But we already want your autograph. That's right. I'll yeah. just say that. I agree. So I think it's really interesting that uh, rural healthcare is actually becoming a hot topic, right? So it's becoming more noticed. The president's last State of the Union speech, he mentioned rural health care for the first time in, I mean, I don't know how many State of the Unions. And so I am very hopeful. And I, I've seen in the last couple years that more universities and more large organizations are putting a certain percentage of their funds into 
rural health research and increasing equity for rural communities. Also due to COVID and everything that the rural communities had to experience during COVID, I also have noticed that more funds have been allocated to rural hospitals and clinics, as well as different programs. And one of those programs is the new Rural Emergency Hospital designation. I'm sure that that's also had a significant impact on you and your your hospitals that you lead. Can you talk a little bit about that designation and how that you think that's going to be positive or a negative impact for you? So Lynn County and Toga, we're not in the situation where we would have to consider a rural emergency hospital status. Several reasons. The, the premise behind the rural emergency hospital is to provide a community, an emergency room, and just that, that you know that there's someone that is advanced trained in life support and trauma that if you get your leg caught in a cotton stripper, somebody's going to be able to stabilize you until we can get a helicopter there to take you where you need to be. And so somebody with some education, but therein lies, somebody's got to pay for it. And so if in a rural community, again, let's go back to the 205, if I'm going to pay the bills off of five patients and have a physician and at least one nurse and a lab tech and a radiology tech, and I've got to have the lights on and got to have the heat on, I'm going to have to have more than what that negotiated contract with Blue Cross or Medicare, whoever's trying to pay me. And so that's the premise behind the rural emergency hospital is that these communities will get a payment once a month from Medicare, from the government that, okay, there's a formula that they can decide how much they're going to need to be able to to sustain their operations. It's, okay, let's say that it's going to cost them $10 million a year to operate this place with all those people I just named, and then they will give you a, not a full payment, we'd love that, but a portion, so you at least could make payroll once a month. And so that's going to save the hospitals in several communities, that they're too close to a bigger hospital. I mean, we're, I'm grateful every day that I go into the hospital and find out we've got six, eight, today we've got 11 patients. I only have 13 rooms to put people in because I'm 50 years old. So I have some of those that, believe it or not, are semi-private. And so how fun is that to have a GI bug and be laying in bed with somebody else that has the same stuff? So it's not optimal delivery of care, but it's what I've got. And so these hospitals that are having to face this, they were not able to continue to care for their patients long term. They were sending everybody to in Stanford um, was one of the last, well, not the last, but in the last five years, hospitals that, that closed. And I worked there in the emergency room for many years. And they would just, anybody that came in that was remotely sick, even if it was something we could take care of, the physician didn't want to put them in and didn't want to work. They just wanted to show up and, you know, put the fire out and go back home. Well, you know, one of the things we talked initially about was recruiting and retaining professional staff, and it's not for everyone. Um, are there days that it's busy, busy, crazy? Yes, but for the most part, it's it's fairly relaxing. You find it particularly challenging more so to get new folks on board working for you or to keep the ones that you do get? Both. I think in all my years of working in rural hospitals, We've only had a graduate nurse right out of nursing school twice. 
And I asked the one that we got, and she's been here since I was CEO. And I said, why us? Why did you decide you wanted to come out here? I said, because you, you realize you're going to see more stuff every day in a larger facility than you're going to see here. I mean, you may have three patients with pneumonia or three patients with hip replacement in one day. And here it's probably going to be one and may not even be but one or two a month. I said, so does that frighten you? She said, no, it, it doesn't frighten me because she, I was able to come and do some clinicals here. And I realized the experience and the knowledge that the nursing staff that you have here, and because the volume is lower, you have more time to spend one-on-one, with, if you will, with patients. And that's what I want. I didn't go to nursing school to take care of nine patients and run like mad every day. I went to nursing school because I wanted to try to make the difference one person, one patient at a time. Physicians is a different story. Physicians, and I'm stereotyping here, my experience with physicians is that they are looking at a paycheck. And yeah, there's a little compassion in there. They want to take care of people, but they want to go where they can make money. We're not going to be able to support the volume that they would need to support for a half a million dollar salary a year. Well, we can't afford it. And so if you're lucky enough to find a physician that wants to make good money, and they will, but also wants to be able to be off at night and have dinner with their children and watch their kids grow up and, I don't know, maybe coach a t-ball game or show up at the PTA, that there's more things that they want to be a part of that are community-driven, then, yeah, it's a perfect place to be a physician or a nurse practitioner and even a nurse. But that's difficult because so many of these young guys coming out or ladies, I mean, they're sitting on, you know, $200,000 in loan payments that they're going to, you know, that they owe for student loans to go through medical school. And they want to get out and get them a nice big fancy house and a boat and a lake cabin and a, take vacations to places that don't speak English and have to have a passport to get there. Well, yeah, we all do, but I wasn't doing that at 25 years old. I was just happy when I got to get away from natural light to Coors Light beer. So, Absolutely. So speaking of boats, how far away are you from Lake Allen Henry? How far oh, are you that? It's, uh, had a friend that it, we would drive down there. It was an hour and five minutes. Okay, perfect. So not bad. I mean, granted, you're going to have to know somebody to get to the water because have you been there? It's been years. I mean, it's cliff. There's no sandy beach. The The boat docks are the only places that you could actually walk walk into the water. The rest of it is just cliff, straight up cliffs. You have to spend the day on the boat. There's no place you can go just hang out and play. Well, thank you for giving us a little bit of insight into what you guys have to deal with in terms of retention and, and recruiting. I think that it's very common to refer to rural nurses and APRNs as well as kind of a jack of all trades, right? So you guys might see five different patients and they might all have something completely different. You might deliver a baby, you might be dealing with someone with pneumonia, you might be have someone come in that's experiencing heart attack symptoms. I mean, you guys really do have a variety of things that you deal with on a on an everyday basis. And I, I think that a lot of urban nurses don't necessarily get to experience that. They get to experience less variety, I would say. Yeah, I think probably one of the most 
I don't know, humbling things that you can never do for another person is not only to help, you know, bring life into the world and have done that a little bit, but working with families in their home community when, you know, their loved one is at a position and in a situation that they're not coming back from and to help them transition and accept that this is what's going to happen and then make it a good experience and make it not scary. You know, that the last minutes or hours that they have to think about spending with their mother or their father or their whoever, brother, sister, is that it wasn't all crying and flailing and gnashing up teeth, that it was peaceful. My executive assistant, um, and I, I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time until she told me one day, she's five siblings, and one of her sisters was actually one of our nurses at a clinic I worked in, and I'd never met her parents ever in my life because they went to a different provider in town, which is fine. He came in on a weekend that I was there, and he was at end-stage heart failure, and the more I got to talk to him, and they had just been in and out and in and out of the hospital and just they all looked miserable and wore out. And I just said, are y'all ready to stop? And they were like, what do you mean? I said, we can stop because that's what he wants to do. He's tired. And if y'all want to stop, I'm not just sending you home to say good luck. We're going to do this. We're going to keep him right here. And we're going to be with him until every breath that he takes, until he doesn't take anymore. And they sat and talked and they came and got me and they said, that's what daddy wants. We don't We don't want to go to any more hospitals. We've all said our piece, and we're at ease with this. And I said, okay, all right. We got a new game plan. So I made some changes in meds and said, everybody that's going to be scared to leave tonight, we've got a lobby. Y'all can hang out there. This other room was empty. Y'all can hang out over there because I know nobody's going to want to leave. And so they said, okay. So about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, I went and checked on him, and he was still with us. And... About six o'clock, they had all, the two people there were in the room with him fell asleep, and I went in the room, and he was there rested, and I went over to the window and raised the curtains because the sun would come up in the east on this particular side, and, the, and I realized that was Carmen, and Carmen woke up, and she said, oh, is everything okay? I said, yeah, I'm just raising the window, the curtains, and so I said, sometimes when the sun comes up, it just kind of helps them feel safe and secure, and they know they can go with it, and then a half hour, he was gone. And so to this day, Carmen remembers that and tells her family. And I'm like, I vaguely remember it only because I've probably done it 10 or 12 times in my professional career of just helping people not be scared of something that is really, really sad. And so they look back on that and think, golly, that was amazing. And it didn't have to be as sad and as heart-wrenching as it could have been had they just laid there not knowing what to expect. I think empathy makes a very strong nurse and also a very strong leader. So how would you say that your clinical experiences have helped you as a CEO? Oh, that's probably my hidden treasure is I know that being empathetic and it's a joke around the hospital. I'm the bleeding heart. My CNO, she's kind of a rough and tough and I wear my feelings on my shoulder and she keeps her under wraps. Uh, it's a good dynamic because she knows, you know, if there's somebody coming in that needs something and I need, we need to figure out a way to get it paid for, she knows I'm going to want to do it. So she'll just come and say, I don't know what you want me to do, but we put them in and they ain't got a lick of insurance and I don't know what we're going to do next. I'm like, 
figure it out. We're not going to just turn you away because you don't have the funds to pay for something. But I, I will tell you, so when you're in a rural community, no one's ever asked me to really cook because I'm not a really good cook. But you don't also have a veterinarian. And lots of times you don't have priests, Catholic priests. And so when you're in a small rural community and you're Catholic and you show up to the Catholic church one Sunday morning and every little head turns around and looks at you because it's like, who just walked in? Some big tall white woman. But I think it helps provide that connection with your community if you can be one of them. And if your little three-year-old brings their kitten cat in that has an ingrown claw and you call the pharmacy and say, I need some antibiotics for Cat Jones. And you're going to have to really dose it down. And they said, what kind of child is this? I said, it's a feline child. Just give the kid the antibiotics and be done. They'll pay cash. That's great. So I think we're getting close to our end here. So okay. I would I would like to pose, I have a lot of questions I could ask, but I'm going to ask one. And in living in Tahoka, doing what you do, it sounds like you're in the perfect spot. Like you clearly have a calling on your life and you are meeting that need of the community. So as the voice of one, you know, crying out in the desert, what would be the most important message you'd want our listeners to receive about the, the type of work that you do and the community that you serve? Well, I have my life coach that I meet with once a month and have coffee because I, I think I don't think, I know he kind of, he's not afraid to step on my toes. And he calls me Richburg. And he said, Richburg, what are your big three? And my big three have remained the same the entire time that I've done this. And they sort of moved from an order. Finances are always my number two, the finance portion of the facility. The other two are my people, my employees. And then the, the other one is the organization. And when I think about the organization, I think about the 50-year-old infrastructure that we have or the ambulances that have 200 miles on it that keep breaking down on the side of the road with patients in them. And so those three are probably my most important things that I focus on at all times. And sometimes my capital is more important in my organization than my employees for basic needs. But I always try to keep my employees foremost in front of me because without employees that believe in the same vision that you have and the same mission that you have, and I've been fortunate enough that I've been able to create a vision and mission statement that my entire team agrees with and supports and backs it up, and that's healthcare closer to home. You know, the story I use with that is how many of us don't feel the happiest when we're at our home? And so... If you have to be sick and hurting and scared, I want to be your home if it can't be where you call home. And then just compassion every day that we're compassionate. And I think that probably is one of the easiest thing as a leader of a small community hospital is that I get to be that person and be real with my employees. I don't have to give a message and it has to trickle down. I'm intentional and at times I need to be more intentional of being present with the employees. But I know that's what makes me feel great when people are happy to see me and talk to me. But I, I think it also helps me be successful because they trust and they see the worry and stress that I have of just running and leading this organization. 
Dr. Melanie Richberg, thank you for being on Behind the Scrubs. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. So, Aspen, what did you think about what Dr. Richberg had to say? Well, first of all, I thought that she was a phenomenal speaker. I mean, I really enjoyed listening to her, and I loved her stories. Second of all, I really enjoyed getting a CEO's perspective on rural health, just because it is so different. And I love that she has a clinical background because she's kind of done a little bit of everything. So I really appreciated that. And it got my mind kind of rolling on talking about the insurance infrastructure. Fun fact that I'm such a nerd for knowing. But Maryland actually is the only state in the entire United States that has a one payment system. So that basically means that for every single person, so if five different people come in and they all have heart attack symptoms and they all have different methods of payment, right? So one is a private insurance, one is Medicare, Medicaid, and then one is say no insurance. So if all of these people come in, they all have different insurance types. In Maryland, they all pay the exact same amount. So if it's $200 for the Medicaid person, it's $200 for the uninsured. And they're the only state in the entire United States that has that system. And so I think it's super interesting what she was talking about with the different insurances and how difficult they are because in Maryland, like that works for them. And that's been in place since the 70s. So I think that that's really interesting that no other state has adopted that system. Sure. that in The insurance part of it was fascinating. And it really was. As she started explaining it, it just, my brain got a little fogged up with it because it really becomes a complicated process. And having the perspective of the CEO, which is not always something we commonly get to have, was pretty valuable. Um, a lot of times that role seems very nebulous and, and kind of distant and you don't quite get that connection. But a facility such as the Lynn County Hospital District, having a CEO that is a practicing nurse, that is helping patients as well, that provides a certain value and that really lends itself to the rural setting. And it's a lot like Daniel mentioned in episode one about how you're part of the community no matter what. And there really is that one-on-one connection. I think she is the right person for that job. It is in a, a spot to really do a lot of good for a, a well-deserved community. Yeah. And I agree with that. You know, we I mentioned it before, but I think that her being such an empathetic leader has probably really, really helped her community probably more than she knows. So I think that that's so important to have, especially in smaller areas, especially in rural communities. You know, luckily, a lot of the leaders that we see in those communities, they do have empathetic leadership. They do have servant type leader attitudes. And I think that that's that's so amazing to have. And the community benefits from that. For sure. And off the record, she did tell us she made 29 free throws in a game. And that was awesome. (laughs) That was an important question that Jeff had to clarify (laughs) after the fact. Well, thank you again for joining us, Melanie, and thank you to everyone for listening to the third episode of Behind the Scrubs. You can join us each month this semester as we continue our conversation with key voices in the nursing community discussing their areas of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in that specialty. We work to achieve better health, more research in basic and applied health science, career journeys, and other issues that directly impact the nursing profession. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To keep up with UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation and its various programs, you can visit us online or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at UTA Con High. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye, y'all.